Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together in fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation to do so. We thank you that we have a president who is, has solid convictions, that he, a man who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and has a firm understanding of what is necessary in order to defend our freedoms. Father, we pray for him and we pray for other leaders in Congress, in the military, in the State Department. Father, we pray for all of these men that, and women that you would give them guidance and direction. And Father, above all, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation because despite or no matter how great and wonderful our military may be, no matter how prof proficient our security forces may be, our true security rests in your hands. Father, we pray for us today as we study your word, as we sit under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we would be responsive to what he teaches us. We pray that you would challenge us and that we would be responsive to that challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the last paragraph, beginning in verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. In these last verses from 10.23 to 10.33, Paul is wrapping up a discussion he began back in chapter 8. Back in chapter 8. So it is these verses that tie together all the principles that he has been dealing with in relationship to doubtful things in relationship to areas that are not specifically considered a sin in Scripture. However, they may create various problems with other believers, uh, the areas of cultural taboos. Back in verse, or chapter 8, let's just go back there for a moment to review what the issues are. In chapter 8, he starts off in verse 1, Now consider things offered to idols. So that shows a definite shift in subject. He's focusing on the, the food, actually, that has been offered to idols. In the ancient world, all the food, the meat, was offered to, to first to the, to the idols, to the gods of the various uh, religious systems in Greece or in the, uh, the other cultures. And after it was dedicated to the gods, then this meat would be sold in what we would call a butcher shop in, uh, in the on the temple grounds. Now, if you look at a King James Bible, the King James Bible translated, translates butcher shop, or the Greek word for butcher shop in chap, the last part of chapter 10, with the word shambles. If you look the word shambles up in a dictionary, shambles is the old English word based on an old French and a Latin word for a butcher shop. And the idea was if you went into a butcher shop, there was all this blood and meat everywhere, and everything was it looked chaotic. So it was a shambles. That was the name of the butcher shop. And the concept, the idiom of everything looking in disarray, we call it just in a shambles, that came from the term describing a butcher shop. So if you have the King James and you're reading shambles in there and you don't know what that means, that's what that means. So in chapter 8, Paul addresses this issue, and let's skip down 
to verse 4 of chapter 8. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. That's his first point, that there's no reality there. Now, later in chapter 10, we saw last time that he emphasizes that there are demons behind the idols, but that they do not necessarily have any influence on you just because you eat meat offered to idols. It's not superstition. You're not going to pick up a demon, he's saying, just because you go down and eat the meat that's been offered to idols. But he does make an important point in verse 7. That is that not everyone has the knowledge that there's nothing related there, and so because their conscience conscience has wrong data in it when they see a believer eating meat offered to idols this can be a major stumbling block to their spiritual life so you, his point is that the corinthians were putting too much of an emphasis on food and the importance of food and in verse 8 he says but food does not commend us to god for neither if we eat are we the better nor if we do not eat are we the worst but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. And there he begins to lay down the principles of how the believer is to handle areas that are not specifically addressed in Scripture, how believers are to make decisions related to participation in activities that are neither condemned nor advocated in the Bible. He comes to the conclusion in verse 23 and is going to reverse, revert back to the basic principles. So let's just begin to look at the first three verses here. 1 Corinthians 10:23. he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for, for me, but not all things edify. Then he states the principle related to the law of love. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Verse 25 then, the application. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. Okay, before we get any further, let's review the four laws related to decision-making that we have studied already. First of all, there is the law of liberty, the law of liberty. This is a spiritual principle or spiritual ordinance directed towards the self that expresses the individual believer's freedom to glorify the Lord. The rule confers on every believer the right to enter into any activity that is not sinful. That it means that it is not specifically described in Scripture as a sin, are prohibited by Scripture. He has the right to enter into any activity that is not sinful and will not cause personal failure in the Christian life. Now, every culture, whether it is an American culture, a Western European culture, Hindu culture, Asian culture, African culture, whatever it might be, every culture develops certain taboos, certain things that you don't do, certain uh, things that you do do certain ways of dressing, certain ways of comporting yourself that have nothing to do with spirituality and nothing to do with the Bible. So how do you handle yourself when you're in the midst of such a culture and there is an activity that is looked down upon and yet you know that the Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with it? How do you handle yourself? Do you participate or not participate? The law of liberty states that on the 
one hand, the believer has absolute freedom in Christ. Galatians 5.1 says that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. In what ways are we free when the Scripture talks about freedom? Well, first of all, we are free from the power of the sin nature. We go back to our understanding of salvation, that there are three phases to salvation. Phase one takes place at the cross when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. The instant we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we are freed from the eternal penalty of sin, which is eternal condemnation. Then we have phase two, and in phase two we are saved from the power of sin. This is progressive sanctification. And in progressive sanctification, the believer takes in the Word of God, learns the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and as he applies the Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, he begins to advance, recognizing and utilizing the principle of Romans chapter 6, that he is putting to death the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of the sin nature. This can only happen uh, under the power of God the Holy Spirit. That is, it can only happen with spiritual value. Paul says, of course, in Romans 7, that under the concept of just basic morality, we can try to make our lives moral, but that has no spiritual efficacy. And then finally, phase 3, when we are absent from the body face to face with the Lord, we are then and only then saved from the presence of of sin. We continue to have a sin nature, an active, very active sin nature throughout our life on earth until we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. So the first arena that where we have freedom is our freedom from the sin nature. There is no real freedom until you are first free from the sin nature. It doesn't matter how much political freedom there may be. It doesn't matter how little authority they may, may be around you. You are not free at all until you are first freed from the power of the sin nature. Consequently, if you are living under an oppressive regime or in a system of tyranny, no matter what that may be, whether that's in the workplace, in the home, or in a country, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have true and genuine freedom because you have been set free from the power of sin at the cross. So true freedom doesn't have anything to do with your external systems of authority. It has to do, first and foremost, with your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, at salvation, we are set free from the sin nature. Second, we are free to serve God. That being set free from the power of the sin nature means that we now have the freedom to serve God. An unbeliever has no freedom to serve God because they are spiritually dead. They are incapable of understanding spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2.14, and they are incapable of doing anything that has any spiritual value. Only after we are saved do we have the freedom to serve God. And third, we have the freedom to do whatever we please. We have volition, and we can do whatever we please that is not an overt sin, that is not motivated by a mental attitude sin, or involve a sin of the tongue. We have that freedom. That's our position in Christ. However, how do we use that freedom? We can't use free, political freedom any way we wish. We have to recognize that what goes hand-in-hand hand with any kind of freedom is responsibility. 
If you don't understand personal responsibility in the way you utilize political freedom, then what will happen is you will be irresponsible and there will be a gradual degradation of the society. And that's exactly what we see in our country as we have shifted away from emphasizing personal responsibility and accountability for decision-making and for the consequences of decisions. What happens is people are transforming the idea of freedom into nothing more than anarchy and nothing more than self-absorbed application, doing whatever I want, when I want, and that's selfishness and arrogance. And when selfishness and arrogance uh, characterize a nation, the consequence is always going to be the self-destruction of that nation. So freedom goes hand-in-hand with with, uh, responsibility and accountability. So when we are free to serve God and we are free from the sin nature, that doesn't mean that we can always do what we want, when we want, the way we want, as long as it's not a sin. That means that there are certain areas of, of life where we may have to make decisions based on maturity and responsibility that even though we have the right and the freedom to some things, we are going to willing, willingly forego that activity. And that was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He used his own life as an example that here he came to Corinth and he had every right as an apostle to have the to be supported logistically, to be supported financially by the believers in the church at Corinth. Yet he never even mentioned money. He he instead set up his tent making business, which was a very profitable commercial enterprise for him. And he set up that business, and that is how the Lord financially supported Paul while he was in Corinth. He had every right. In fact, he makes the point that the pastor-teacher should be supported by the local congregation. You don't muzzle the ox while he is feeding. And that the principle there is that when the uh, workman of the Lord, the pastor-teacher, is doing his job, then he doesn't need to be distracted by financial concerns. He doesn't need to be worrying about how he's going to pay his bills, how he's going to take care of everything. He needs to be able to focus on studying and teaching. And when he's not paid enough, and he in many cases may have to take a second job, and I know many pastors who do that, who have to run some sort of business on the side just to be able to make ends meet, to be able to put their children Uh, through school, through college, to be able to take care of the various details of life, it distracts them from the primary mission that God has given them, which is to study and teach the Word. And so the congregation suffers tremendously because the pastor cannot effectively pastor that congregation. So there is a, as are certain areas where we have to be willing to say that because of the circumstances right now, even though I have a right to this, this is a legitimate activity, I am not going to participate because there are higher purposes, more significant things going on, and so I'm willing, I'm willingly going to forego and give up that which is my natural right. That is the opposite of self-centered arrogance. That is the application of the second law, which is the law of love. The law of love is primarily directed toward other believers, directed toward other believers, and it, this is an application of John 13, 34, and 35. In the law of love, we have a spiritual law or ordinance based on 
consideration for immature believers. This is stated in 1 Corinthians 8.13. This rule places love for the weaker Christian ahead of the law of liberty. I have a right to something, but because there is a weaker brother there, I am willingly not going to engage in this activity because it may present some sort of problem for his spiritual life. So we're going to think about others rather than just thinking about self. This is an application of impersonal love or unconditional love, and the believer refrains from participating in some activity, not because it is wrong in itself, but to spare susceptible believers from temptation in their area of weakness. This is being willing to give up certain things because of their impact on other people. Now, that's hard for people to do, and I wouldn't be about to ask for personal testimonies about how you have applied this principle in life, but because I'm afraid that there would be uh, no testimony. So we'll just pass that up, because it is extremely rare for any of us to truly apply this principle. This is the principle of John 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. The emphasis there is not loving your neighbor, as it's stated in Leviticus 18 in the Old Testament commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. But here the object of love is one another, that is, other believers. As I have loved you, that's the standard, is the, st- the love that Jesus Christ demonstrated on the cross when he was willing to give up everything he was, he had, and enjoyed as God, as a second person of the Godhead, and to limit the exercise of his deity to become a man, to become a true human being, and go to the cross and there suffer in our place as our substitute. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That is the standard. Jesus Christ had a, had a legitimate right to stay in heaven and not to be incarnate as a creature and not to go through the pain and the suffering of being identified with our sins on the cross. He had a right to say no, but he gave up that right. He limited the free exercise of those privileges in order to become a creature. That is the standard for a law, the law of love. And then in John 13:35, by this, by this exercise of impersonal love, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This demonstration of imp- true impersonal love becomes an unimpeachable evidence in the life of the believer that he is a learner, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have... The third law, the law of expediency. The law of expediency. This is a spiritual ordinance based on consideration for the unbeliever. The first law, the law of liberty, focused on the individual believer's understanding of his own position in Christ. The second law, the law of love, is directed toward other believers. And the law of expediency is directed toward unbelievers. Uh, This is a spiritual ordinance based on consideration for the unbeliever. A believer refrains from certain activities, not because they are sinful, but because they may mislead or offend an unbeliever. They They may create an issue 
where an issue is should not be created. For example, if you were going to be a missionary in an Islamic country, you would have to give up the use of alcohol while you are in that Islamic country because that would create a secondary non-issue in terms of your witness of the gospel of Christ. Not because drinking wine or drinking scotch or drinking vodka or whatever it might be is wrong, but because in their culture this is viewed as something that is wrong, and rather than creating a secondary non-issue, you need to focus on the true issue, which is Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross and not create uh, distractions in the process of witnessing. It's difficult enough in many situations to uh, maintain a witness. So this is the law of expediency. And then the fourth law is the law of personal sacrifice. The law of personal sacrifice. This is a spiritual principle directed toward God. First we have the law of liberty toward self, the law of love toward other believers, the law of expediency toward unbelievers, and the law of personal sacrifice directed toward God. This is a spiritual principle directed toward God that involves the abandonment of a completely legitimate function in life. This is where someone completely gives up some activity for the remainder of their life in order to more intensely serve the Lord Jesus Christ in a specialized capacity. This may also be applied to the ordinary believer as they begin to progress in their spiritual life and realize that there are certain activities in life that are just plain distractions to their spiritual growth. And the longer you live and the more you focus on your, your primary objective, which is growing to spiritual maturity, the more you're going to recognize that there are things you have enjoyed doing in the past that you just no longer have time for because they're a distraction to being in Bible class, they're a distraction to learning the Word, and they're a distraction to growing. Not because they're wrong, but you just have limited time on this earth, and you only have so much time to learn the Word and to grow and mature as a believer, and that's the issue. It doesn't matter about these other activities, and they may involve good, wonderful things, but you just don't have time because they become a distraction in the spiritual life. So at some point, we all reach these stages in our maturity where we realize there are good and wonderful and enjoyable activities and maybe even friendships that we have to forego because they are a hindrance or a distraction from the from the goal of spiritual maturity. These are the four laws that are outlined by Paul between chapters 8 and chapters 10 and how the believers should make decisions in relationship to uh, activities that are neither forbidden nor advocated in the Word of God. Now, there are three test situations in Corinth. And what's interesting here is to watch how Paul applies these principles because most of us want to have some sort of rigid line. Don't do this, don't do that, and universal principles that apply the same way in every situation. But grace isn't that way. Grace recognizes that there's flexibility in life. There are different circumstances, different people. And so there, Paul outlines for us different ways to apply these principles. The first situation would involve simply whether or not it's okay for the individual believer to just go down and 
purchase meat at the meat market or to even eat meat that had been purchased at the at the meat market that had been sacrificed to idols. And in that case, he lays down the principle of 1 Corinthians 10.23, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Now, one of the first things you should notice, just superficially reading this verse, is that Paul repeats this phrase, All things are lawful for me, twice. And this is a phrase that he has used previously and has referred to back in chapter 6, verse 12. In 1 Corinthians 6, 12, he was dealing with the fact that of the dealing with the reality of the immorality and the licentiousness in the Corinthian congregation. And in 1 Corinthians 6:12 he makes the statement, "All things are lawful for me, but not but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any." And then he goes on to talk about foods are for the stomach and the stomach are for foods, but not all but God will destroy both it and them. And the point is that food should not be an issue. When he uses this phrase, all things are lawful for me, he is repeating what has become a slogan in Corinth. They were so impressed with their freedom in Christ that it had almost become a slogan that all things are lawful, and so they were using that phrase to justify licentious behavior, antinomian conduct, and, and carnality. Jesus Christ paid for the sin, so why should I worry about it? It doesn't matter. Everything's lawful now. We're not under the law. There's anybody who comes along and says you shouldn't do this as a believer, you shouldn't do that as a believer, or you should do this as a believer, or do that as a believer. Well, that's just legalism. Anytime you emphasize a mandate for the Christian life, that's legalism. That was their argument. I've heard people make that argument today. I've heard people who ought to know better make that argument today. But the point is that legalism is misdefined and misunderstood. People talk about legalism all the time, but most people don't know what it is. Legalism is not the idea that there are absolutes for behavior in the spiritual life. Legalism is the idea that what an individual does is the cause of God's saving or blessing the individual. Legalism is the idea that what you do somehow impresses God so that he will either save you or bless you in this life. That's what legalism is. Legalism is not the idea that you should not or you should engage in certain activity. That's a distorted view of legalism. You see, what happens at salvation is that the believer exercises non-meritorious faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the believer down here. This believer is minus R so that he can't do anything that uh, gains God's approval, God's approbation. All he can do is put his faith alone in Christ alone, and faith is non-meritorious. That means all of the merit, all of the value is in the work that Jesus Christ performed on the cross. So when the unbeliever puts his faith alone in Christ alone, then God the Father takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and imputes that to the believer. At that instant, the believer receives the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, God the Father is perfect righteousness, and he is absolute justice. 
the righteousness of God is the standard of his character. The justice of God is the application of that standard toward his creatures. When the righteousness of God looks at the believer and sees the righteousness of Christ, then the justice of God is able to bless the believer. So at salvation, when the believer puts his faith alone in Jesus Christ and receives the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness, at that point God the Father can declare that individual to be justified. That is what it means to be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. At that instant of salvation, God the Father does at least 40 different things for the believer. 39 of these 40 are irrevocable. They do not change. The 40th is the filling of the Holy Spirit, which we lose when we sin. We recover when we confess our sins under the principle of 1 John 1, 9. At the instant of salvation, God blesses us with innumerable blessings in the heavenlies. They are put on deposit in our account. They are given to us. They are ours. They are ours not because of what we've done, not because we've read our Bible, not because we've tithed, not because we've given to the church or witnessed or taught Sunday school or been to church every Sunday with a perfect attendance record or whatever the gimmicks are that many churches come up with. God has blesses us and gives us all those blessings at the instant of salvation because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then as we grow and mature, he distributes those blessings because we develop the capacity for those blessings. God is not going to distribute the blessing until we are ready for it. Now, that means we have to follow the precise procedure that's laid out in Scripture for spiritual growth. We have to use 1 John 1, 9 to confess our sins, to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him whenever we sin so that we can recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and we can be restored to fellowship. So the idea of that any, everything is lawful goes completely against the grain of Scripture. There are, there are precise procedures laid out in Scripture for spiritual growth, and that is part of grace. God has described those to us, and the spiritual life is based on grace just as salvation is based on grace. So what the antinomian carnal Corinthians were doing is taking grace and distorting it and saying everything was okay, that nothing was a sin, all things were lawful. And Paul counters that with two statements. First of all, that not all things are helpful. And second, that not all things edify. So Paul is going to lay out for us some flexible principles for believers to use in dealing with doubtful areas. The first issue has to do with just the the raw basic reality of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul's answer to that is, that's not a problem. There are clearly many practices and events in life involving eating and drinking, activities that in and of themselves are not sinful. There's no moral issue involved. The second question, though, that he has to deal with beyond that is that the question of what about eating meat that has been dedicated to the to the uh, idol, to the, to the false god, 
and going down to the butcher shop at the pagan temple and purchasing it there where other people may see you purchase the meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, this is, this is going to be answered uh, starting in verse, verses 25 and 26. But the key principle that he lays down is that even though there may be legitimacy to some things, the principle for decision-making is, is it helpful to my spiritual life, and is it part of the process of edification? Edification is the Greek verb oikodomeo, oikodomeo, and it means to edify, to construct something, to erect something, to strengthen something. It is the idea of strengthening the soul. In our diagram that we use on the spirit, on the soul fortress, it is the process of constructing that soul fortress, of building that soul fortress in which we live that protects us when we are in adversity, when we are in sin and we are in adversity and we convert that adversity, that outside pressure of adversity to the inside pressure of stress in the soul, then we go outside that soul fortress and we're living in an unprotected state which is devastating to the spiritual life. So the issue is that we are to follow the precisely correct procedure that the Scriptures lay down for the spiritual life so that God the Holy Spirit can produce spiritual growth and spiritual strength in our soul. So the principle or not is not the question that we should ask, first of all, is not, is this okay? Is this a sin? Is this um, a moral activity? But the question is, is this beneficial to my spiritual life? Is this part of the process of edification, or is this a distraction? Many activities in life are fun. They're fine. They're enjoyable. Many times we can even rationalize those activities into thinking that uh, somehow that gives us an opportunity to witness. It gives us an opportunity to spend more time with the family. But in and of itself, it becomes a distraction to our own spiritual growth and spiritual life. And as we advance and as we grow, we begin to realize that, that there's certain activities in life that we have justified that actually distract us from learning the Word, thinking, learning to think biblically, and growing in our spiritual life. So the key issue in life is to grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3.18. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have some folks who just obsess and become preoccupied in such a way that every minute they're saying, well, maybe I should be listening to a tape now. Maybe I should be doing And they go to the other extreme, and they become completely out of focus because they make listening to doctrine almost a legalistic uh, talisman that if I listen to my tape every day, then God's going to bless me. And I've heard that extreme. So it's somewhere in between recognizing that you have to grow spiritually and that it's fine and good for all of us to participate in many different activities in life. The issue is don't let those other activities become a distraction to your spiritual life and your spiritual growth. Then in verse 24... Wait a minute. Verse 24, Paul lays down the principle of love. He says, Let no one seek his own, 
but each one the other's well-being. We are to think in terms of how our behavior may have an impact on the immature, weaker believer around us. We can't just do like the Corinthians and say, well, they need to grow up. They're just idiots. They don't know what they're doing. We need to recognize that uh, we were once idiots and didn't know what we were doing either, and we have to go through that process of growth. This same principle is articulated in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says there, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. There he hits at the motivation. He hits at the mental attitude underlying the activity. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, that is humility, let each one esteem others better than himself. In other, in other words, quit putting the focus on your legitimate rights and put the focus on the impact on others. Verse 4, Philippians 2, 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the principle of the law of love. Then we come to 1 Corinthians 10, 25. So Paul makes it clear, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Then he adds another question, asking no questions for conscience sake. Now this is where flexibility comes in. See, grace involves flexibility, and most people are so rigid, either you eat the meat or you don't eat the meat. Just make it simple for me and give me a principle. But Paul is not that way. Paul says grace means that under some conditions you can eat the meat. Under other conditions you don't eat the meat. It's not a hard and fast rule. Now, you may take a position because of the law of personal sacrifice, the fourth law, that you may decide, I'm just not going to ever let this become an issue, so I'm going to forego such and such activity for the remainder of my life. That's fine and good. But don't impose that decision on other people. That's when it becomes legalism. So what this shows us is that you can be in some circumstances where one night you're with one group of people and you don't eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and the next night you're with another group of people and you do. And what's, different, what's changed is the circumstances. There's flexibility. One night you're out with some people. There may be uh, a weaker brother there, so you decide that you're not going to engage in a certain activity and create an issue, or there may be an unbeliever there. You're not going to do something that might create an issue. The next night you're with believers, and so you engage in that. You eat or you drink or whatever it is, and it's not an issue. But Paul says that in this situation in Corinth... He's laying down an issue. First of all, whatever is sold in the marketplace, you can eat. It's not a problem in and of itself. However, circumstances may change. He says, first of all, don't ask questions. Don't look for a fight. Don't make an issue out of something ahead of time. You know, go into the marketplace, order the ribeye, the T-bone, the filet mignon, whatever it is, and don't ask questions. Has this, been, has this been offered to the idols? Don't try to make an issue out of it and create an issue where there is not an issue. And the principle is based on an Old Testament quote from Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord and all of its fullness. It goes back to the basic principle that God created all things and, and sanctified all things, and therefore... Eating meat is not a problem, neither is there a problem with anything else. People always want to make an issue out of drinking alcohol or 
or something else, but the psalmist says that God made wine for the joy of man's heart. So that doesn't mean grape juice, as some people want to want to force it. It means a good alcoholic beverage known as wine. Now, Paul also goes on to recognize that there may be some people around that do want to make an issue out of something. So now he addresses the question. He moves to a third situation. The first situation is just the flat issue of is it inherently right or is it inherently wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols? He says it's not an issue. Go ahead and eat meat. Don't ask any questions. Secondly, he addresses the question, what happens if you're invited to a party at an unbeliever's house and this unbeliever is serving meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Well, first of all, when the unbeliever trots the stakes out, don't ask questions. Don't make an issue out of something that's going on. However, he says, if any of those who, who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. Don't make an issue out of it. There are some people that um, it's not an issue one way or the other in terms of, of having, a, having a, a drink, having a glass of wine or whatever. They, haven't, they have no desire one way or the other. Let's say you go to a party and your host offers you a glass of wine. Don't make an issue out of it. Let's say you're a believer and you've decided for whatever reason, legitimacy, le- legitimately, that you're, you're just not going to drink. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's not a health issue. Maybe you've got alcohol uh, problems in your family and you just don't want to create that. Whatever it might be, and you've decided that you're just going to be a teetotaler and you're not going to drink. And you go to a party at somebody's house and they offer you wine. That's fine to say no. It's stupid to say, I'm not going to do that because I'm a Christian. See, now what you've done is you've identified a certain activity with the essence of Christianity. And this is another application of this principle. Don't make an issue out of non-issues. The issue is with an unbeliever is Jesus Christ and the cross. Don't get distracted from the focus of the gospel. However, there may be some other believer at the party where this is a problem. This is verse 28. But if anyone says to you, and this is the weaker brother who trots up and says, Now, remember, this steak you're getting ready to eat, that was offered to idols. Now a red flag ought to go off. It was okay for me to eat the meat a minute ago, but now I recognize there's some weaker believer here for whom this is an issue. At this point, you make the decision, I'm not going to eat the steak. I really want that steak. It's a good-looking steak. I haven't had a good steak in a while, but now there's this privately you think this idiot believer here who doesn't know anything and um, now we have to apply the principle of impersonal love and we have to realize that it's more important for their spiritual life than our palate and so we make the decision not to eat the steak so this is the principle of verse 28 not because it's wrong but because we don't want to cause this other believer to violate his conscience. Notice the emphasis that Paul has made both in chapter 8 and now in chapter 10 on the importance of not violating the conscience. Even if the conscience has false norms and standards in it, Paul emphasizes don't violate your conscience because once you lay down the principle of rationalization 
and the practice and habit of rationalizing and justifying, coming up with reasons where you can violate your conscience, then when the, the issues really matter, you have created a habit pattern in your thinking to rationalize away doing that which is right, and this is going to be devastating to your spiritual life in the long run. So Paul says, now you have to apply the principle of impersonal love. Verse 29, he says, Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other, that is, the weaker brother. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Now, here's the principle. We always want to say, why should I give up just because this other believer isn't smart enough, isn't trained enough, it doesn't know what the principles are. Why can't I just re-educate him? Well, re-educating someone doesn't happen overnight. You don't change the norms and standards in your conscience necessarily in a quick manner. So it takes time. They have to come to it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and not because you just turn around and tell them, look, get things straightened out, and you have to understand some of these principles. So then Paul goes on to say in verse 30, But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? In other words, a rationalization here that I think I realize that all this food comes from God, Psalm 24.1, that the earth is the Lord and all it contains, and 1 Timothy 4.4, 4. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. So here Paul gives one rationalization that, okay, I've given thanks for this food. Why is it that I have to give it up? And his point is that you have to recognize that there is another principle that overrides everything else. It's not just the principle of is it helpful, is it edifying, but does this glorify God? Verse 31, Therefore, he introduces a conclusion, Whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. This establishes the main point in the conclusion that the overriding factor in decision-making is does this glorify God? Now, the problem with asking that question is there's too many people who introduce a level of, or a tremendous level of subjectivity at that particular point. How do you know if it glorifies God? Is it your opinion whether it glorifies God? Is it my opinion whether it glorifies God? Is it somebody else's opinion? Well, the scriptures are clear what glorifies God and what doesn't glorify God, and we have to make that decision based on an understanding of scripture. It is this verse that gives us the overriding control on decision-making. Does something glorify God? And if you were raised as a Presbyterian, you memorized the shorter catechism, which asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. At least at their starting point, they got it right. The word glory means something that is worthy of praise or exaltation. The Hebrew word kavad means something that is heavy. That is, it's almost like the idiom we had back in the 70s when somebody would see something impressive and say, heavy, man. You know, it's that idea. It's something that is weighty, something that is important, something that is overwhelming. And the glory of God 
and looking at the glory of God, we are overwhelmed with all that He is and all that His grace has provided for us. In understanding God's glory, we have to realize that it has two aspects. The first is His inherent or intrinsic glory. God has glory. It can neither be added to nor taken away from. God is eternal. God is always the same, and that glory never diminishes or increases. No one can ever add to it or take away from it. The second aspect of God's glory is that of ascribed glory. God's inherent glory never changes, but we are to ascribe glory to Him. We are to uh, praise Him and emphasize all that He has done, and that is part of worship. Worship, the English word anyway, comes from the Old English form, worship, where we attribute worth and honor and glory to someone. So worship involves the idea of emphasizing the importance of knowing God. That's why at Preston City Bible Church, we emphasize the principle that studying the Word of God is the highest form of worship. Now, the Bible gives us various different uh, ways that we can glorify God, that we can ascribe honor and glory to Him, and this would include various things. First of all, it includes confession of sin. Confession of sin, because we have to be in fellowship with God for the Holy Spirit to be working in us in His sanctifying ministry. So it glorifies God when we confess our sins and admit and acknowledge our sins to Him because that is also a recognition that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for all of those sins. Second, we glorify God by making learning and applying doctrine a number one priority in our life. When we make learning His Word the highest priority in our life, then we are saying that this is more important, and God is more important, and the knowledge of God is more important than anything else in life. The third way we glorify God is to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. This is related to the filling of the Spirit, but it is the ongoing process of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. It's not just the more static or passive situation of being filled by the Spirit, but it is actively walking or applying doctrine by means of God the Holy Spirit. The fourth way we glorify God is through exercising the faith rest drill. We understand His promises and we claim His promises and trust Him to fulfill His promises. The fifth way we glorify God is when fruit, we bear fruit in our spiritual life. We don't actually bear the fruit. It is God the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit, but He only produces the fruit if we are abiding in Christ and walking by means of the Spirit. John 15:8 with Galatians 5:16. Furthermore, we glorify God when we have an attitude of gratitude and we are thankful to him for every circumstance and situation in our life, good or bad. Psalm 50 verse 23. And then seventh, we glorify God when we handle rejection, adversity, or any problem or prosperity in our life by using the ten problem-solving devices to handle that situation. 
For example, in 1 uh, 1 Peter 4.14, Peter says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ. Now, this isn't standard adversity. This is being rejected because you are a believer. It is being rejected simply because you are trying to uh, emphasize your own spiritual life under the principles of Scripture. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, that is, on the part of the person who is rejecting or reproaching you. But on your part, he is glorified. So when we take our stand for the truth, no matter what happens, when people react to that, God is glorified because it is a witness and testimony before all of the angels in the heavenlies. Peter goes on to say, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. In other words, don't get involved in carnality. If you suffer for carnality, that's exactly what you deserve. Yet, if anyone suffers as a believer, as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So when we are in circumstances of adversity or suffering, then we, when we apply doctrine through the ten problem-solving devices, God is glorified. Then we come to verse 32. Verse 32. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. This brings in another concluding principle. We've had three main principles here. First of all, ask the question, is this helpful or edifying to my spiritual life? Second question, does this glorify God? And third question, is this going to give offense to Jews, Gentiles, or to believers? Three categories of people. Now let me say something about the, the command here, give no offense. There's a difference between intentionally doing something that will offend a positive individual and doing something for which they take offense. There are many people that you will take a stand for whatever biblically, and they will take offense. This is the legalist. This is the, you know, the, the, in, in my experience, the only people who really have a problem with the believer having an alcoholic beverage is a legalist. I have yet to run into the the so-called weaker brother having a problem. It's almost always somebody who just gets uh, all bent out of shape because some believer is exercising their freedom. Jesus faced the same situation during the Incarnation. The Pharisees were constantly taking offense at him. In fact, they criticized him because they said, look at John the Baptist. He came and he fasted and he lived out in the desert and he lived on locusts and honey, but Jesus, he claims to be the Messiah, and he's, he's running around going to all these parties with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and, and he's a drunkard and a glutton. Now, the, he wasn't a drunkard and a glutton, but the fact that they charged him with being a drunkard and a glutton so showed that his behavior was different than John's. John was an, was an abstainer. He didn't drink alcoholic beverages, and he did not go to the parties, and he had a very limited diet. On the other hand, our Lord obviously drank wine, and he went to the parties, and he ate from all the food that was put before him. And so the Pharisees took offense at that. 
But Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm not going to do anything to offend. If you take the principle that I'm not going to do anything to offend anybody, you're not going to do anything ever. The issue here is if somebody's positive, don't do something that becomes a problem for them. But something that we do whenever we exercise our freedom, somebody somewhere, some legalist is always going to take offense. So we have to understand more precisely what Paul means when he says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. If you, This is not in a general sense. This is in a personal situation where people are there. If you know that it's going to create a major problem, don't do it. Don't rub somebody's nose in something. If you're going to be witnessing to an Orthodox Jew and they come over to your house, don't serve them ham sandwiches. That's what he is saying. Don't make an issue out of this. Then he concludes in verse 33, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, many, that they might be saved. The ultimate issue is making the gospel clear and not creating uh, secondary issues, uh, not creating situations that distract from the principle of the gospel. So this gives us, in conclusion to this discussion from chapter 8 through chapter 10 related to doubtful things, three key questions to ask. Is this helpful? Does it edify? Second, does it glorify God? And third, is it going to create some sort of secondary issue that distracts from the gospel? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the way you make these things clear for us in your word and how grace is not a system of rigid legalism, but, but grace includes flexibility as we apply principles in various situations in life. Father, we thank you for the ultimate demonstration of grace where you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make that, give them this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you have the opportunity to trust Christ as your Savior. It's just a matter of your will. Do you trust in Jesus Christ alone as the sufficient one who died on the cross for your sins, or are you relying on something else? God and his omniscience know exactly what you trust, and the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father gives you or imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, justifies you, gives you eternal life, which can never be taken away. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.